Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Suto Phil. Envío al área, el remate. Ahí está el primer tanto del partido. No lo celebra, por supuesto. Aaron Ramsey, 0 a 1 para el Arsenal. This is Arscast Extra. Hello there and welcome to another Arscast Extra. As always, with James from Gunnerblog. Hello to you. Hello. Um, right, where to start exactly mm. with, with what happened on Saturday against Hull, a game that we were looking at as, if not a banker, the, the kind of game that we could put in a good performance, get a good result, get three points on the board, build a little bit of confidence and momentum and belief going into a run of games where, you know, against opposition of similar-ish standard. And, um, well, if that was a plan, it, it, it didn't quite work. No, no. What did you say to me off air just now? How did you describe it? A bag of shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's pretty accurate. You know, there was a, a, a decent enough first 20 minutes, wasn't there? You know, we started okay. I thought that was really... I was really encouraged by the way we started the game and we looked positive and, and threatening and I think the goal when it came was absolutely deserved. We merited the goal based on the, the performance and also based on the way that we'd played. You know, yeah. it, it was the archetypal... If the commentators had said, well, you know, there's a goal coming here because I think Harper had made a brilliant save from Cazorla and, we, you know, we were just on top of them and then we scored and you're thinking, perfect. That's really mm. the best we've started a game practically all season. Because that's what had been missing from other games where we've started like that. You know, there's been a couple of occasions where we've had that kind of high-tempo beginning, but we haven't got the goal to capitalise and cap it all. And then we actually went and did it. And then you thought we were in a perfect position to kick on. Mm. Well, what did you make of their equaliser? What's your overall feeling on that? Is it one that, you know, we were hard done by by the referee and we should have had a foul or was the fact that they got into that position in the first place down to our lack of defensive ability or strength, or, or what is it? It's definitely a foul, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a clear foul. I mean, uh, on match of the day, I think they said that Flamini's maybe a little bit... He, he suffers for not going down. You know, mm. if, if he falls to the floor there, does the whistle immediately blow? Maybe. I mean, I, I do think it was a very strange refereeing decision it wasn't just one tug he sort of had a two or three goes at him didn't he yeah. uh, and even Steve Bruce I think he was questioned about it and they said oh it was an individual piece of skill and he said like it was an individual piece of grappling uh, <laughs> he, he, I think even he knew that it was a, a clear foul maybe there are other errors I think you know he went past Diame went past Montreal pretty quickly before he went got to Flamini and there's a slight sense in which maybe 
once we thought the free kick had been given, we slightly switched off. You know, mm. the, the players around slightly stopped in their tracks. and But he was through by then. He was gone. And, you know, I think it was a real oversight from the referee. And I think that's really the, the primary thing. What about you? Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling is that sometimes... You know, in in the anger and frustration, it's too easy to suggest that a player should have done better or more when there's a, an obvious foul on him. And I'm not, you know, suggesting Flamini is the the most brilliant player or uh, or anything like that. But I think, you know, as I said on on our blog yesterday, that if it's a forward that goes through and is fouled and the referee doesn't give it, you're furious because. Well, you know, you're not saying, well, he should be stronger. He should hold off the defender. If it's a foul, it's a foul. Hmm. Um, and I think Flamini had done pretty much everything right in terms of getting ahead of Diame, putting himself in front of him. And then when he was pulled back, I think he was actually just trying to kick the ball back to uh, to Chesney. Instead, it rebounds straight into Diame's path. And, uh, you know, I think we were pretty hard done by then. What was worse for me was the way that the goal took the wind out of our sails, as if that first 15, 20 minutes hadn't happened. That, yeah, I mean, me that, isn't worse. that the most? That's the most galling thing, isn't it? I think because when uh, when something like that happens, what you hope is that it will galvanise the team and they'll they'll want to fight back and respond to it. But instead, it just seemed to puncture the whole performance, really. And mm. you know, we we arguably we we just never recovered from from the equaliser. The second goal that they scored thirty one seconds into the into the second half, um, you know. I don't know how to even talk about my reaction to that because I was just sitting here watching the game, doing the live blog, and you're just sort of getting started and you're looking at it going, what? How the fuck does that happen? You know, Infuriating, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely crazy. And Arsene Wenger talked about the team lacking focus coming out um, for the second half. Now, you know, that's something we can analyze and jump on. To a certain extent, I guess there is... You know, he's trying to provide an explanation for something which is ridiculous. Um, and it is a bit soundbitey that maybe we shouldn't take it at exactly face value. But uh, at the same time, um, you, you could explain it away in other ways by saying, well, look, that was, was just terrible play or what have you. But to say we lacked focus coming out at home uh, in a second half that you really want the team to kick on in, it's just um, it's mind-boggling, really. I mean, it, it might be a soundbite, but it's... I think it's true, isn't it? I mean, that's the explanation for how they just walked up the end of the pitch and scored within 30 seconds. Mm. That's the only only way I see it. I mean, there are individual errors in there. Per Mertesacker doesn't cover himself in glory, but that's down to a lack of focus as well, isn't it? He's not quite switched on as much as he should be. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's just bewildering, isn't it, how a team can go out with that kind of attitude and not be on their toes in a game where they absolutely need to, to take three points. And again, we come back to the reaction that it didn't spark Arsenal into life in any serious way because uh, Hull had brought on their third-choice goalkeeper um, just before halftime because Harper got injured. And you're thinking, OK, well, here's a third-choice goalkeeper and third-choice goalkeepers are usually the third choice for good reason. Um, mm. So test him and make him work and make life difficult for him. And and we didn't do that at all. And, you know, Hull were uh, well organized. And we know from having played them uh, in, in the recent past that, you know, they're, they're a team that's well drilled defensively. But at the same time, at home, we just never got any momentum going. I mean, how much of that was down to us and how much of that was down to a lot of people talked about their time wasting, which is 
you know, I, I've something of a red herring for me because I, I just don't think we played well enough to build any momentum for them to disrupt. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, from a whole point of view, if you're Steve Bruce, you'd be saying, you'd be slapping your centre backs on the back and saying, you know, you did a good job. They were disciplined. They were, they were quite effective. They had those those three centre halves, and they performed pretty well. Mm. But I just don't think we did enough. I mean, the second half performance from Arsenal, I'd say, is probably the the worst forty five minutes we've put in this season. Um, just because at home with the players available that we did have. We ought to have been able of doing so much more, or to been capable of producing more, and we didn't create, as you say, clear cut chances until what felt like the dying embers of the game. You know, mm. the last few minutes or so. A lot of us are wondering, is this third choice any good? I think most of us are still wondering. Mm-hmm. You know, we we just didn't put him under any real pressure. Made a good save from Alexis, in fairness. He did make a good save from Alexis. You know, that, that save from the header was good. But equally, there was the, another one, I think, was it Cazorla, where he parried it straight out towards towards Campbell. So, yeah. you know, there's a suggestion that there could be... You know, I think a lot of his football has been played lower down the leagues. League One, he was on loan. So, you know, we, we could have got at him and we just didn't didn't come close, really. I mean, you know, that there was that header from Alexis uh, and then you're into stoppage time where you've got the equaliser and then Gibbs and Monreal both had kind of half chances, not necessarily the players you'd want those to fall to, but for 40-odd minutes before that, it just didn't look like anything was doing, anything was happening, and players came on, Ramsey came on, Campbell came on, they added a bit of liveliness, but the, the midfield just didn't have the, the the flow that we're used to seeing from an Arsenal team. I feel like the, the composition of that midfield has been tinkered with so much over the course of the season that that familiarity isn't there, and all the great Wenger sides are based on patterns of play, but there's no real sense of patterns of play about what we're doing at the moment. It's just, it feels a bit thrown together and a little bit random. Mm. I mean, there is obviously an element that the injuries were suffering, uh, and this is not to use the injuries as an excuse, but to say that the injuries were suffering have prevented us um, uh, building patterns or building players who are, are making combinations on a regular basis because one mm-hmm. week some guy's in, the other week somebody's out. Um but, you know, it's it's October. We're heading towards the end of October, and this team still has yet to to really find its identity this season. And that, that for me, is is, uh, is really worrying. And w- when you look at a game like the one against Hull, where you expect, um, because we're Arsenal and because we have ambitions, based on what we did at the end of last season and based on what we did throughout most of last season, um, you know, by leading the league, you know, we've we've raised the expectation level again and we're falling below that. We have. And I think it's very, very difficult to say that we, you know, that we've made progress. We look like we're in regression at the moment as a team. And I agree that a lot of that is down to injuries. I don't think that's helped. But it's alarming that, yeah, we seem to be, we seem to be going backwards. Um whether that's because we're in a kind of transition, because we're still adapting to new signings we've brought in, I, I don't know. But it is troubling because how long can you afford that to go on? Uh, we're in mid-October now and we're 11 points behind the league leaders and they are in danger of disappearing over the horizon, really. Mm. Um, so it's definitely concerning. And even if you look at the top four, you know, there's... There are sides who I think a few weeks ago we were were laughing at the struggles they were ha- having who are now above us. Um, you know, I, th- I think Liverpool are one and Manchester United another. So, yeah, very, very, very troubling. I mean, what in that second half, what what did you feel was 
the problem if you if you had to put it down to one thing is there is there anything that you could identify as the issue with that performance that's a really good question i don't quite know um i do wonder if our lack of stability at the back kind of inhibits us going forward in a way um right. i think that's interesting because inevitably a lot of people will have responded to this defeat by saying well, why didn't we bring in more defenders? Why didn't we bring in a holding midfielder? But, you know, looking at it on an individual basis, I don't think you could say that Nacho Monreal had a bad game at centre-back. I thought he looked all right, didn't he? Yeah, I I thought he was fine. But I just mean that, um, you know, in order to to really attack properly, you you have to know that you've got a a relatively stable uh, platform behind you. Yeah. And I don't think, excuse me, I don't think we have that because if you look at, our corners. There were two or three in the second half where, where Hull broke from our corner, being cleared, and there were a number of times where we had to get men back to make last ditch tackles. Joel Campbell made a great tackle on halfway. Mm. Uh, I remember uh, Danny Welbeck and Oxley Chamberlain running back to um, to prevent uh, what what would have been a really seriously good opportunity for a side if the player in space had been somebody quick and if we'd had an Arteta or a Flamini in that role chasing behind, if you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. th- you know, they got back. And I think then all of a sudden you're, you've got uh, forward players chasing back to dig in defensively and it takes you a while to get your shape and momentum. I, I just... I just don't know because it's so hard to tally that that second 45 minutes with the first 20 minutes. It it must be something psychological or something in the confidence or the belief in this team because we could see from the first part of the game that they're capable of being fairly potent um, moved the ball well, moved the ball quickly, didn't d- dally on it. I just think that sometimes when when we're in a position like we're in at Hull we have a tendency to to try and and do everything right through the middle of the pitch if you know what i mean we we've got wilshire um trying the 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 one twos the give and goes those little the the norwich gold kind of moves which when they come mm-hmm. off are absolutely brilliant but when you've got a team that's got uh, uh midfield sitting deep three center halves uh, and they're happy to squeeze you into the middle of the pitch you we just don't use the width enough um and I just think the players that we have on the pitch perhaps are are more comfortable in that central area than they are out wide, and we lack the ability then to to break down teams um, from from wide positions. But well, I, you know, I, I, you know, like I said, it's very difficult to understand why in the first twenty minutes they can play in a certain way, and then in the second half be completely and utterly unable to do that. Maybe we should give some credit to Hull for whatever tactical setup they used, which negated, um, you know, our, our positives or our strengths. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. The, the question I've just been <laughs> pondering uh, while, while you were on that was, I was going to ask you, I mean, I, I know we come on to the questions in a bit, but I was going to ask you, do you think our problems are primarily going forward or going backwards, as it were? Or do we have bigger problems Defensive problem, defensive. I think we've got bigger problems in defence because I think, you know, if you're relatively confident that you can keep a clean sheet, then you can uh, scrape a goal or nick a goal and win a game. And we've seen that um, with this team for 
maybe 18 months, you know, after we had that period where we we defended terribly against Spurs and we saw the Mertesacker-Kasialny um, partnership really blossom and we scrapped out one nils and, and uh, those kind of wins towards the end of the season to get us to... Um, to get us to the Champions League. And I don't think it was any coincidence that with that newfound confidence in our defence that we were, last season, a team that was top of the league for a long time, even if it didn't work out. We had that defensive platform, which I think was... I won't say obliterated, but I think the confidence in that was was broken considerably by the, the, the bad results. Yeah, particularly sure. Anfield and particularly Stamford Bridge, that the the belief we had in ourselves as a team that could defend was evaporated by those results. Not so much the Manchester City one, but those two. Um, and I think that if we could find more defensive stability, then we would be more able to cope with the games where things don't quite uh, click as, a, as an attacking force, but you can still get a goal like Alexis got. You know, or you For can sure. scrape that goal in injury time when Alexis plays in Danny Welbeck, and that's a one nil win. You know, so I think it's certainly a defensive uh, issue. I think there's a certain element of bad luck with Debushi being out. Um, you know, who adds experience and and um, and everything to the to the right back position. But there's absolutely no excuse for not having gone out and bought another centre-half this season. And people say, why did we sell Vermaelen? It would, would make no difference. Vermaelen still hasn't played, uh, you know, this season because he's he's knackered. So, no, good point. Uh, you yeah. know, we, we needed to go and buy another centre-half, at least. And I think that until we find defensive stability, we are going to continue to drop points and silly points. Because, you know, how many times have we said, Arsene Wenger said it, well, they only had to, you know, three shots on goal and they scored two goals. But that is the story of our lives. It has been for just so long now. Yeah, first shot, first shot on goal invariably goes in, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you'd love to play Arsenal, wouldn't you? If you were like a half-ass footballer, fuck, you'd love a game against Arsenal because you could, oh, all of a sudden you pick the ball up 35 yards out, you go, well, it's Arsenal, I might as well have a go here, and you watch the ball sail into the, to the top corner. It's, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the Neil, you know, how many people have Neil Mellard us down the years? You know, Far too many. You remember that for one. fucking goal he scored for Liverpool a few years well, back. You can't but, forget it, can you? <laughs> no, no, mostly because he was just so fat. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's really um, obvious that unless we sort things out defensively, we can we're going to struggle because we're not a team that's going to score five or six. Um, even though we've got good attacking players, but you know, it's 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 just a bit of a shambles defensively right now. Yeah, I think so. And I do think that going forward, I think there's work to be done as well. I agree with you. We've got good attacking players, but we're quite reliant on the individual quality of someone like Alexis because collectively it's not clicking as much as you'd like. But I agree that without that secure base of a a back four that we can rely upon and that we can trust to to not give goals away, it's very Mm. difficult to see how that attacking game... He's going to develop and flourish. Yeah, right. Well, look, we've got a Champions League game on Wednesday against Anderlecht, and mm. um, Callum Chambers will be back for that. But what do, what do you think the manager is going to do? Because he's got he's got um, an issue in goal because uh, Emiliano Martinez is going to play because Wojciech yeah. Szczesny is suspended and David Ospina is not going to make this game. Um, does he does he bring Chambers back into the centre of defence alongside Mertesacker, keep Bellerin at right back? Or does he, given the fact that he's got a rookie goalkeeper, keep someone like Monreal there, 
put Chambers at right back and try and give his uh, perhaps uh, his back four his best four available defenders yeah well I was actually going to bring this up later Callum JP92 asked which of those players would go for I mean I thought Bellerin was a, a rare positive yeah. in the performance um, Danny Welbeck was fulsome in his praise of him and I thought going forward he was very good he made a couple of excellent recovery tackles as well looked, looked very comfortable um, I think I'd probably opt to play Hector Bellerin over Nacho Monreal I think Chambers is a little bit more comfortable at centre-back than Monreal so I'd rather have him in there alongside Mertesacker even though that makes it a less experienced back four. I just think it's one that has a, a little bit better balance. What, what about you? Yeah, that would be my... If it were up to me, that's what I'd do. I think, you know, try and play players in their m- more natural positions. You know, I don't think Monreal had a bad game, per se, against against Hull, but it's just not his position. I mean, he says himself, he finds it strange playing mm. there, whereas Chambers looks a lot more comfortable. Bellerin is obviously a right-back. Um, you know, should we need Monreal from the bench at some point, then, you know, uh, at, least we, at least we have that option. But I have to say... Uh- I'll be intrigued to see how Martinez gets on because I know he's thought of very, very highly in the club and he's been recognised internationally at pretty much every level. But whenever I've seen him play, he's, he's looked all over the place, to be honest. I remember him in that Carling Cup game at Reading a, a little mm. while back. Yeah. I know he's had a loan spell at Sheffield Wednesday since then. I hope he's I hope he's come on because it'll be a significant test for him. Yeah, I mean, I think he's done... He's done pretty well there at times, and I think it was Chris Kirkland at Sheffield Wednesday that he yeah. he was competing with, and he got a fair number of games. So you know, goalkeepers mature at a, a slower rate. But again, he's our third choice goalkeeper, and he's our third choice goalkeeper for a reason. Um, you know, we've seen it in the past where Manone has come in and had some good games. So mm. we, we'll have to hope uh, hope for more of the same um, from from Martinez. Good luck to him, I say. Yeah, good luck to him, as long as he doesn't play like Manoni did this weekend. (laughs) Poor Vito. Poor Vito. Okay, look, what we're going to do is take a short break now. We'll be back with some of your questions in part two. This week's Arsecast Extra is brought to you by Audible.com. For your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial to their service, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash Arsecast. That's audibletrial.com forward slash Arsecast, and you can get a book in your ear. Every sign-up does help us here on the Arsecast Extra. helps keep things going, so it's all very much appreciated. It's audibletrial.com forward slash Arsecast. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. As always, this is the part where we answer questions sent to us on Twitter, uh, at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog. Thank you indeed for all your questions every week. Um, we can't get to all of them, obviously, because there's millions. Mm. L- literally. Literally. Yeah, literally millions. Literally we millions. That's, we wasted most of the time counting, yeah. so we can't answer them all. Yeah, that's why we take a break in the middle just to count them. But um, <laughs> uh, thank you all indeed for those questions, and apologies if we can't get to yours, but we do try our best to get through uh, as many as possible. So uh, without further ado, uh, this one comes from Dublin Gooner, at Dublin Gooner, and he wants to know, was Jackie Oatley out of order on Match of the Day, or did she ask proper searching questions of Arsene Wenger? And if you haven't seen the video, there's a, a video of uh, BBC's Jackie Oatley talking to Arsene Wenger after the game, and it got a little bit, little bit edgy, you might say. Yeah. yeah. What did you he make was, of it? 
Um, what did I make of it? I thought she was entitled to ask the questions that she asked. I think she was doing her job. Um, equally, I think he's entitled to give whatever response he sees fit. Uh, I think he was a little bit ungracious in defeat, but I can understand that. You know, uh, when you've just lost, uh, not lost, it felt like a lost, it wasn't even a defeat, was it? Blimey. <laughs> yeah, really that sums feel. it up right there. Yeah, that felt like one, didn't it? But, you know, he dropped two points. He wasn't happy about it. He's sick of facing certain questions. I thought it was telling that I think at one point she asks him what is to blame and he interprets it as who is to blame. You know, there's a sensitivity there and a, a slight vulnerability. I think he's, you know, probably conscious that criticism will be building the longer this sticky start goes on. But in short, I think, yeah, she's she's allowed to ask and he's allowed to answer. Um, I didn't see too much wrong with it on either side, really. What, what about yourself? Pretty much the same. I mean, the I thought the, the question, the sort of reply where she had said, um, I can't remember what he said. He said something about defending or not bringing in defenders. and Or she said something along the lines of, um, or you, you didn't win because they didn't come out of their half. And that clearly wasn't what he was saying. So I can understand him being a bit, you know, a bit cheesed off with it. But that's the nature of the game, isn't it? That, you know, reporters should, I think, ask questions. And I don't really have any issue with a reporter or a journalist asking a question uh, or asking difficult questions of managers because, you know, that's part and parcel of their job. And too often you you get these inane bullshit questions from uh, the people who do the post-game punditry and it's just like shit and you know how did you feel about that and you know they're terrible whereas I think at least she tried to get a little bit more in depth as to why things weren't working for Arsenal why things aren't working for Arsenal at the moment Uh, I don't think she has any issue with the way that he responded she said I can ask the questions he can respond any any way he wants um, I don't think it was particularly disrespectful or anything like that. What I thought was weird was Gary Lineker's tweet. Did you see that? What was? The, no, I don't think I did. He said, must say, I thought Arsene Wenger was arrogant, defensive and patronising to Jackie Oatley in the face of excellent and fair questioning. Now, I thought he was just a football manager who was fucking pissed off at the way his team had played and the fact that he'd, he'd dropped two points not been defeated obviously but but had had dropped two points i think if in those situations you put a a difficult question to a manager chances are you're going to get a reply that isn't always the most mannerly or you know it's the it's the circumstances these things take uh, place in that is is, do you think gary lineker's intimating that you know he uses the word patronizing do you think he's intimating that arson's response has something to do with the fact that jackie is a woman is that is that the insinuation I don't know. Only Gary Lineker could, could answer that. I didn't. That didn't occur to me actually until you said it. And I don't think that genuinely. I, I, don't, can t- I can tell you that Austin was just as grumpy with every, you know, with all the male journalists in the press conferences as well. I, well, I mean, that's what I was just going to say. I don't think that Arsene Wenger is the type of man who would who would think that um, he would he would take umbrage at the question, not who was questioning him. I mean, it wouldn't yeah, occur absolutely. to him whether it was a man or a woman. That wouldn't make any difference to him. If he was going to get pissed off, he'd be pissed off with a with a guy asking him that question as well. So maybe that was a maybe that was something Lineker took from it. But I don't think I don't think that was anything Arsene Wenger took from it. No, I mean I just wonder because I think patronising is a really interesting mm. word to use, and I wonder if he is sort of implying it. You know, yeah. a slight gender issue there. But I, I think that 
you know, he was in a foul mood yesterday um, after the match, Arsene, and I, I was in the the press briefing he did, you know, with all the journalists. And yeah. I think the final question was something about, uh, you know, you're 11 points behind now. How, how big a concern is that? And there was a horrible stillness in the room, a tension you could cut with a knife because no one, no one likes facing these things. But I thought, yeah, I thought Jackie Oatley did a, a good job because ultimately it, as fans, we, we want answers to these questions as well, don't we? I mm. think, you know, and having people who are prepared to actually address the key issues rather than just sort of glossing over them and, as you say, just dealing in, in cliches and dull questions that we hear week in, week out, is great, really. And I think that she she was right to push him and I don't think he was massively wrong to respond in the way that he did. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's uh, pure storm in a teacup stuff for me and maybe it's maybe it's because we don't see enough of that you know, not just with Arsene Wenger, but with other managers that difficult questions or questions that aren't the banal, trivial nonsense that you get game after game after game. Maybe when one of those questions comes up and we get a, a, a more uh, emotive or human interaction between the manager and the and the reporter, that it becomes, it's so rare that it becomes uh, a bigger thing than it actually is. While we're on this, what did you... Did you have any particular thoughts about Arsene's post-match comments in general? Were you surprised by his his kind of defence of the performance at all? No, because that's that's what he does, I guess. Um, mm. I don't think anybody should be surprised. I mean, he always looks to take the positives from a performance as much as he possibly can. There are some days where he just can't. Uh, but for the most part, he will he will look for the positives because I think he wants to keep his team positive that if he feels they're lacking belief or confidence that he doesn't want to say well you know we're we're a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com struggling at the back and blah 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 so I, I think his his public declarations particularly post game and the press conferences are par for the course when we don't when we win it's you know we, we were good if we come back we had mental strength if we didn't win you know we lacked a little bit something you know th- there's very rarely anything new about what he says mm. and I think anybody expecting him to be brutally honest and to unload on his team is going to be waiting a long time for him to do that. What he says and what he does in private or on the training ground, unfortunately, we're not privy to. I'd love to be, because I can't imagine that there are, um, you know, there are days when he doesn't go a bit mad. And 
and doesn't chastise players or, or bring the players together to, to criticise them because of the way they played or b- behaved or acted. Because ultimately, he knows as well as anyone else that when, when we play badly, it reflects on him. So, yeah. So, But just he's never going to do it in public. He never will, unless you get whacked by Chelsea 6-0. And what can you say? There's no positive you can take from that. But a game where where we didn't lose... And he, you know, this will go as part of a statistic now where we're, I don't know how many games it is at home, 22 games at home where we haven't lost. You know, he, he'll turn that around and use that as part of a, a positive a positive thing. It's been X amount of time since we lost the league game at home. So, yeah. So that's it. Well, there we go. Next question. Yeah, it's your turn. Okay. Uh, what should we have? All right, let's have this one. This is from Adam Leary. He asks... Is it time for Pear to face some criticism? Abject yesterday and present for last season's shellackings. Nice guy, but is he up to it? I have a murder-sacker question here as well, and I think, uh, let me just see who it's from. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, It's from Matt Horner, who also says, do you think Mertz uh, is a lesser player without Koscielny there? Um, I, I don't think he was abject yesterday. I think he was found wanting for the goal. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I thought he was he was pretty solid, and he is, you know, f- f- uh, a reliable, consistent player. Um, yeah, and I think he's so. I think he's formed a reliable, consistent partnership with Koscielny. And I think perhaps that we have the the upside of that partnership is that we have two players who bring out the absolute best in each other. The downside of that is is that when one of them is missing it's very difficult for for either of them to be as effective with another partner. So I take exception to the the description of him as, uh, what was it, abysmal or? Abject. Abject. Yeah, Yeah, I, I don't think he was abject. I thought his defending for the goal was bad, but I thought the whole team for that goal, I mean, Tom Huddleston running past Jack Wilshire in midfield and Jack not even trying to stop the cross, those are, that's part of it as well. Um, I mean, Tom Huddleston running past anyone or anything is a rare enough, you know, occurrence that yeah. shouldn't be allowed to happen. To no, us. no. Um, but yeah, Not I mean, I think blessed with speed. <laughs> no, and look, we know all about that. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think that you know, yeah, you can you can certainly ask questions, and I think that um, perhaps part of the reason why, maybe part of the reason why he didn't feel as. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like he didn't have to buy a centre half. Like it wasn't so urgent. Was because he's got this good partnership. Well, maybe in part he th- was worried about splitting that up, or he felt he couldn't yeah. get someone who would challenge that yeah. too much. But I think you know every player in every position in the uh, this club needs competition for their place. I think that's normal. It should be the the, the natural order of things um, in any football club. So. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what was the question again? I've lost. <laughs> uh, the, Adam's question was basically: uh, Is Mertesacker up to it? Based on uh, you know his performance yesterday, and uh, I guess across the start of the season. Yeah, I think he's up to it. I think he is a good player. He's reliable. He's consistent. Uh, he's a good organizer. He's a good leader. But you know, I think that we get the best out of Mertesacker when we've got a fully fit Koscielny and we get the best out of Koscielny when we've got a fully fit Mertesacker and that is an issue then that that harks back to our uh, our defensive um, problems. What are you yeah, reckon? Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, look, I, I really like Pear. You know, I, I'm, I'm biased in that respect. He seems like a great guy and, you know, I've got a lot of affection for him. But I do think he's an excellent defender as well. I mean, in the first half of last season, in that run that took us to the top of the table, he was as important as anybody else in the team, wasn't he? I mean, more sure. important than most. Um, and he was credited with kind of helping to stabilise the back four, an organiser, a leader. Um, so I think, you know, he's clearly got it there. I think he's not had the best start to the season. There's a little bit of a sense of a World Cup hangover about him. But I think you're right. I think what he's suffering most from, what he suffered most from uh, against Hull was was not having Koscielny there. And that comes back to the, the same era in the transfer market of not bringing in somebody who could, you know, easily slot into that, the central defence, someone mm. with experience and who could provide cover for both players. Because this Koscielny situation is a pretty nasty one, really. I mean, we haven't spoken, I don't think, since that was kind of all an- announced. His, his Achilles problem was made clear by Arsene Wenger. I think everyone knew it was there, but some of what Arsene had to say about it sounded pretty worrying, really. I mean, if, effectively, it was like when he when he can manage the pain, he'll be back on the pitch, and that doesn't seem like an ideal state of affairs. No, I mean, and they've known about that for quite some time. Hmm. You don't develop chronic Achilles uh, tendonitis in both Achilles tendons. It doesn't happen overnight, you know? <laughs> no, it really doesn't. And, um, you know, that, again, is part of why there's frustration about why we didn't bring in a central defender because you know we just needed it it was yeah anyway and, and also on Murtzaka I think like everyone in the defence he's probably not getting enough enough protection um, you know if you told me even at the start of last season even when Matthew Flamini was kind of the, the hot hot new thing you know when he came into the club and seemed to have that re-energised spirit and was playing very well yeah. I still would have found it unthinkable that he would be a first choice player in 12 months time um, and you know I think it's a strange straight state of affairs and the, the back four have been a little bit exposed by by that side of things as mm. well alright okay here's another question this comes from Andy at Yorkshire Gunner and he wants to know should the board at Arsenal question Arsene Wenger bearing in mind they say they don't on the back of that um, fairly remarkable quote from Sir Chips at the mm. AGM where we say, well, if Arsene Wenger has a plan, we back him. And if he doesn't, we just, you know, go along with that too. Um, is there a danger perhaps of reading a bit too much into into that? Well, I think, was he just trying to say that, well, look, Arsene is a football guy and, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to rock the boat there. We're not going to say to him, you know, don't buy this player. But it, it did come across as fairly insipid. Well, I think what he was getting at was, you know, we live in a, an age where a lot of owners are, are, or chairmen are criticised for being too interfering on the football side. And what he's saying is, well, this Arsenal board, we're not going to be like that. We we believe in the old football club model whereby a manager is the guy who calls all the shots. Even so, actually hearing it that explicitly... Um, took you aback slightly even though it's something we all know we all know we've all said for some time you know Arsene Wenger calls all the shots he's the guy who's effectively accountable for everything who's running this club but to hear it laid out you know in, in those clear terms it did uh, did surprise me a little bit um, should someone be putting more pressure on him maybe but who is there who has the the, the knowledge or the, you know the knowledge required to do that Um 
is there anyone on the, on at that level of the club on the mm. board or amongst the directors who can look at the squad and speak with that kind of authority about footballing matters I mean yeah. maybe it doesn't take a genius to see we need a centre back you don't have to be an ex-player to know that we could have done with another defender but who, who's got the authority then to go up to Arsene Wenger and say look transfer window is closing and we don't have enough defenders I mean Gazidis would be the obvious person wouldn't it yeah but does it you know can he can he influence things in in that way from a football point of view like if Arsene Wenger says to Ivan Gazidis look uh, here's uh, X, Y and Z go get that done go do those things from a footballing point of view go buy that player mm. you know that's what Gazidis is, is part of his job right but is Gazidis in a position to, to, to look at things objectively and approach Arsene Wenger and say as the board as a representative of the board or the owner uh, we don't think this is quite right or quite good enough do something about it I, I that seems really unlikely to me it does doesn't it it does um, and you know it's a point that's been made many times before but you know so David Dean for example he had a kind of relationship with Arsene Wenger where even if he wasn't saying it in a kind of uh, critical way he could make that point to him personally and, and talk talk the manager around on certain things yeah I'm not sure Gazidis wields that kind of influence. Um, no. I think Wenger effectively... You know, Gazidis works for Wenger, not the other way around, yeah. it seems to me. Yeah, maybe um, uh, maybe Josh Kroenke can come in and say, you know, Arsene, we need, uh, we need a new relief pitcher. Go, <laughs> go get one, or else Stan's going to be really unhappy. A, a relief pitcher sounds like a jug of urine. <laughs> yeah. but, um, yes, it does. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't think there is anyone there, and and you know, one day uh, in the in the distant future, when a new manager is appointed by Gazidis, I imagine that kind of dynamic will exist more because it will be his man. He will have brought him into the job. But this is he'll be you know, able they, to say, Phil Brown, when I exactly. tell you to do something, <laughs> you fucking do it, and then don't give me any of your your orange guff. <laughs> Well, we await the day with glee. Yeah. But I think, you know, for the time being, I think Wenger, Wenger does call all the shots. What was the original question? We're really rambling on. It was, it was, uh, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> one second. Should the board at Arsenal question Arsene Wenger, bearing in mind they say they don't? Like, should they? Should they? Um, yes. I, I would say so. I'd say it's in any company or in any sort of structure any business if you want to use that horrible word any club any football club that's a healthy thing you know for demands to be to be mm. put upon people who are effectively employees whichever yeah. way you slice it i mean i don't suppose it has to be uh, quite as specific as okay we've looked at the squad and we think you need x but like surely at the start of a season there should be something put in place where right you should have you know, X amount of defenders, X amount of midfielders, X amount of forwards, you know, and if there's a glaringly obvious um, gap in one of those areas, then, you know, as part of your remit, you've, you've got to sort that out. Yeah, but what happens if, let's say, let's say I'm even Gazidis or Ivan Gazidis, I'm yeah. not really sure which it is, and um, I sit down with, with you, you can be Arsene Wenger, okay. and I say, this, <laughs> and I say, uh, this season... You know, we want to challenge for the Premier League uh, and challenge for the Champions League. There are aims as a club. Do you think you've got a squad capable of doing that? 
And if mm. Arsene, if you, Arsene Wenger, say, as I imagine he would, yes. Look, uh, yes. Exactly. What can I do about that? Even if I, even if I can see objectively that there is a kind of numerical mm. issue, if, I've, if Arsene Wenger sat there and he's saying, well, I can play Monreal as a centre-back, or, well, I have Sonogo, what... You know, ultimately, that's that's his judgment, isn't it? And yeah. what more can the board even do, even if they do challenge it? They can't force a player upon him, can they? No, no, that's a very good point, actually. It is. Um, and, and that, I suppose, comes down to the amount of, of power that Arsene Wenger has um, as the manager, the football manager of the club. And until mm. such time as, as Phil Brown is the manager, that ain't going to change. Yeah, and I think as well that's what kills stories like the mad thing about did did Gazidis buy Danny Welbeck? Because to be honest, if Gazidis had the power to buy Danny Welbeck, he would have bought a centre back as well, mm. and uh, <laughs> he didn't. So no, he didn't. We are where, we are where we are. We are indeed. All right, let's have another one from you. Another one from you or me even? Yes, you. By you, I mean you. And I see you yeah. threw me there. Yeah. Okay, this one <laughs> is. Um, from B. Morris. Has he got a full name? Ben. Ben Morris. And he asks, while Mesut Ozil is out, should we experiment with Alexis playing behind the striker? Well, you know what? Um, it may not be the worst idea in the world, to be honest, because mm. he created that goal from, or for Danny Welbeck, from a really um, central position having picked the ball up slightly on the left, he came into the middle. And there was a... I was impressed by not just the run, because he's always at that, the running and the twisting and turning, but I was impressed by, A, the uh, the vision to see Welbeck in the space and, and, and uh, B, the delivery into him. It was quite a bit more subtle than I'd, I thought he was capable of. Um, so it might not be the worst thing in the world, especially when Theo Walcott is coming back. Um, in the not-too-distant future, and there were some questions about where does Theo Walcott fit into this team now that he's fit? I think the obvious answer there is where he always plays, which is on the right-hand side. I don't think there's any real issue about that uh, unless we significantly change our, our formation. So I suppose that has to be balanced with his tendency to be a bit robbed of possession from time to time. Um... But look, you know, if he's going to, if he's going to um, persist with a a four-one-four-one, then maybe it's not the worst idea. Um, yeah, I, I I would have no problem with it really. I'd like to see it for a couple of games, um, and if it doesn't work out, it's not like we don't have options. So, yeah, why not? Why not give it a whirl? Yeah, would you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe. He seems to be doing all right on flank. That's the only thing I think. You know, whether he plays right wing, left wing. You know, he started on the right wing yesterday, scored that brilliant goal, um, and then, you know, switched over to the left and, and cut inside to create the equaliser. Yeah. I think he's he's such an effective player. He, he can kind of play wherever he wants. I think it depends how else you, you fit people in. I mean, maybe you'd get more about, out of him through the middle, but... I don't think it's the, it's, the, it's the most pressing thing. It's an interesting idea. I'd like to see it tried it out, but there are there are a few things I'd like to see experimented with. It's just how much how much we can afford experimentation. Now well, what, the, okay, the come on then. What what would you like to be experimented with, or on, or at, or or what? Go on. What would you do? Well, I, 
I'd still like to see a front two. I know that it's something we've gone on about before. Mm. Um, but, you know, rather than say, I'll oh, put Alexis as your central attacking midfielder, I'd, I'd like to see him up there paired with Welbeck. The issue is, have you got a central midfield that can survive that? You know, do yeah. we need to play with three central midfielders in order to have enough cover for the defence? I, I don't know. Um Probably we do need three central midfielders at the moment because the guys we've got in the holding roles aren't really convincing. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? Mm, so you're looking at playing what four, four two? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I've lost count already. That's two, two, six. Two, yeah. Four two two two, or you know the old four four one one kind of thing, if not quite a four four. Too, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've banged on about the diamond a fair bit, you know. That That's true. Play Arteta at the base, and then Ramsey Wilshire either side, and then I don't know Kazola at the top of it. It seems to me there you've got, you know, your four maybe your four best midfielders in their best positions, and then you could have Alexis and Welbeck, uh, Welbeck as your front two. Whether or not that would leave our often exposed fullbacks even more isolated. I don't know. Um, to be honest, it seems worth a try. It feels like what we've got isn't working. Mm. But uh, we we know that the the manager's unlikely to do that. But as a as a as a fantasy, yeah, it's nice. It's a, a thought. Is there anything else you you would try apart from the the two up front? Three goalies, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, every time we there's someone has a shot, they're going in. So yeah, yeah. See if we can get. I don't know, Martinez in there alongside Chesney. Mm, all right, here, here's a question from uh, at macho underscore grande one. Um, are you over macho grande? That's an airplane movie reference, if you don't get it. Uh, okay, very nice. You, yeah. should, you, should, you should watch it, it's good. Um, okay. <laughs> he wants to know, um, and he's not the only question on corners, but he wants to know, why do you think we've scrapped the Mertesacker near post flick-on from corners that we tried last season? It, it was something that occurred to me a couple of weeks ago, as I watched corner after corner skid towards the near post and not be the first man. Um, I wonder, was that was that an issue with Steve Bold saying, you should try this, it really worked for us back in the day, or, well, seeing as most of our corners go in that direction anyway, we might as well stick Per there. Well, I, I think it was implemented kind of deliberately last season, and... Um, I think it was there in the first couple of weeks of this season, but we seemed to do away with it. I don't remember which game it was where we had about, maybe it was Spurs or something. We had like a, a million corners or something and, and didn't create a single chance. And that's when uh, it went out the windows in the first few weeks of this season. And I just feel like effectively they, they seemed to decide that it wasn't, wasn't working often enough. Um, I have to say, I think it was... It was better than what we're doing at the moment because at least there was some semblance of a plan. Mm. Whereas now it just feels like we're just chucking it in again um, and invariably hitting the first man, like you say. Yeah, should we? Um, I mean, remember when Barcelona were brilliant but tiny? Remember they had that team where nobody was over six foot. It was like a, do, a team full of um, magical jockeys winning everything, but. The midget gems. Yeah. But they, you know, when they got a corner, you're looking at, well, what's, who are they going to aim for in there? You know, the giant that is Iniesta or whatever. But invariably, they, you know, as a possession team, they, t- they took their corner short. Is that something mm. we should do more of? I mean, it's certainly a variation, given that most of our corners are shit. Yeah. You know, these couldn't be any more shit. No, and we haven't got many players who are great in the air as well. Um, 
let's just tap it, give it to Alexis and see if you can just dribble through everyone from the side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would be a lot more effective than what we're doing at the moment. Mm, I agree. Um, I'd be up for that. All right. Uh, Have you got one more? Yeah, I've got one more. This is uh, a challenge. Okay. Um, This this is from uh, Lulu. I'm going to think, I'm going to say it is the Lulu. I'm sure it is because, you know. What else would she be doing with her days? Well, the, actually, the Twitter username is at Lulu Mister, so maybe it's Lulu's husband. <laughs> and it's, he asks, it's not. right? He asks, um, what were the silver linings from this weekend? The silver linings from this weekend were Alexis, yeah, Hector Bellerin. Yeah, I thought he did well. Danny Welbeck, um, in terms of his in terms of his goal, five in his last five. Yeah, scoring well. You know, play him down the middle, and he will get you goals. Uh, it's just a shame it had to be you know a goal that that salvaged the game rather than won it. And what else was a silver lining this weekend? Jack Wilshire is not dead as it first appeared. That that's I suppose a good thing. And I made a nice cake. And that was Did you? Yeah. Yeah. What was in what sort of cake are we talking here? It was a, a lemon drizzle cake. Uh it's, classic. It's, I find I find um cooking quite therapeutic after a bad Arsenal game. Because I like to think of the eggs as you're smashing them into the flour as, you know, people's heads and stuff. Mm. Mm. No, well, that's not, nice. Not like chickens. No. <laughs> you know, hens, I guess. Hens rather than chickens. Okay. So, so yeah, those are those are the silver linings for me. And also the, my, my daughter came home from Dubai for a couple of days. That was that was nice. Puts oh, things in, in perspective a little bit. Um so yeah. Did what she we, watch what, the game? Did she have any views? No, she didn't. She didn't. Um oh, yeah, she probably had quite a good weekend then. Yeah, she did. She did. she doesn't give a shit. Uh that's a, a nice way to be. It is. I wish I could say the same. <laughs> yeah, uh, silver linings. Just trying to think if there's anything else. Um, I don't know. Watching QPR Liverpool was quite funny. I was in the pub um, with the, the Mug Smasher watching that. And it was like, hey, oh, hey, oh, yay. <laughs> that was ridiculous. That last five minutes was fucking ridiculous. Yeah, um, really and, and you know what? It, you know what it was a perfect illustration of? Was the 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 two Queens Park Rangers goals that that they scored on the on the counter attack the breakaway, mm. the that those goals were the perfect illustration of why you should take a man down in midfield and take a yellow card. Yeah, absolutely. Tactical fouling. It sounds cynical and it sounds terrible, but it happens to us all the time. And when you're when you're a team that can break at speed, sometimes the only weapon against that is to be destructive much higher up the pitch. And if it costs you a yellow card, I mean, think about it. one of them was Carl Henry. I think it was Sterling who got away from Carl yeah. Henry. This is a man who would take a, a an axe to a fellow player on the pitch if he thought he could got away, uh, get away with it. And he let Raheem Sterling, you know, it was great play from Sterling all the same. But, you know, he should have just taken him by the collar. And just, well, like, the, held the, him back. Yeah, on the TV, they said, well, he's already been booked, so he wouldn't want to risk sending off. And I was thinking, have you, have you seen Carl Henry play before? Yeah. I don't think he's bothered about it. To no. Rest. It's just another one for the collection. Yeah. All right. Um, final question, then, from me, and it comes from Ross Adams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's at Ross Adams 33. So I don't know if he's actually 33 or born 
1933, which would make him one of our eldest listeners. I'm oh, just, good, just good of him to tune in. Good old Ross. I'm looking at his uh, profile picture, and if he was born in 1933, the man has got some secrets. Yeah, he's, 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 good he's for it, aging he? well, aging very well. He very wants nice. to know very simply: Monster Munch or hula hoops? Oh, uh, you say simply? That's not that's not an easy one. Um, I'm going to go hula hoops. <gasps> okay, why? Because I like the sort of novelty of putting them on my fingers, pretending they're jewellery. Yes, but, um, okay, right. I don't want to come across as offensive or anything here, but have you got, have you got fingers like pencils? Because yes. I too enjoyed that when I was a small boy. When I was I mean, this younger. This the memory. Yeah, I, you know, now they, they, they wouldn't even fit. You know, I do have quite slender fingers, though, like a pianist. I remember once I put one of my sort of stupid song videos up on YouTube and a lot of the comments were about my slightly frightening hands. <laughs> so I reckon I could still... Were they from I South could, Korea, those comments? Or? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I reckon I could still, um, I could still squeeze into a hula hoop. <laughs> but I don't know what... I mean, it, it, t- well, go on then. You, you think Monster Munch. Tell me why. Um, I kind of like the dust... On the Monster Munch, I mean, well, I'm you fine. Get to the I, end of the packet, is yeah, they're like all dust. Yeah, the a, like, because they're corn snacks, so they're kind of covered in a weird fake flavor dust. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I'm my my preference with crisps is generally speaking um, uh, just salted, like Lay's. When whenever I go to Spain, Lay's classic salted. I'll just sit there and eat those. Really, all the time. I've got yeah. to have the ham on in, in Spain. Yeah, no, I'm 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 very much into just the ready salted end of things and hula hoops tick that box. But Monster Munch, not only is there original Monster Munch flavor, there's pickled onion Monster Munch flavor, and there were brilliant ads for Monster Munch back in the day. And then there's the dust, which is the the polar opposite of the dust that you get in the bottom of a box of cereal which mm. is right up there with the worst shit of all time. That stuff is disgusting. And when well, you, you pour it in... off a box of cereal, like, early to avoid that dust. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I would, yeah. Or, and I've done this, is that you... you Strain get, it? Yeah, through a colander. So you just get no the dust way. out. Yeah. That way you still get the full benefit of the cereal, but you don't get any of the ming and dust. There's nothing worse than just pouring the last bit in and going, ah, oh, dust, God damn it. <laughs> Except the Monster Munch dust is the good dust. So that I'm going for Monster Munch. There we go. All right. I think we've explained Guys, that pretty well. If you start with us, thank you. All right. Well, look, um, hopefully um, that was more entertaining than what happened on Saturday. And hopefully what happens on Wednesday in the Champions League will be more entertaining than edible and non-edible dust at the bottom I, of packets. I, I mean, maybe they could just go out on the pitch and strain Monster Munch. I would watch that. Yeah. I, yeah, I'd be into that, but maybe the UEFA and the Champions League sponsors would not because their Monster Munch is probably not the official corn snack yeah. of the UEFA Bloody Champions League. Bloody UEFA foiling us at every turn again. Fuck you, Platini. All right, we'll have another Arsecast Extra on Monday. Uh, on Friday, the Arsecast will be here. I'll be chatting to Amy Lawrence about her uh, fantastic new book, Invincible, um, mm. which uh, everybody should read. But we'll chat about that on the Arsecast on Friday. So until the next Arsecast Extra, take it easy. Bye-bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.